Romans chapter 7. This will be actually the third message that I'm bringing. Romans 7, first few verses. This morning, what I want to do is just simply read the first four verses. Romans 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Well, the message today is entitled Married to Christ. I've done two messages on being dead to the law. We are dead to the law. In what ways? One, we're dead to the law as far as the law ever being able to get us right with God, right? Cannot be justified by law. For most of us, that's not a big deal, but the world at large, they basically approach God that way. What they can do to get right with God. Okay, we're not under law. And we see very specifically from verse 7, he says that the law says, thou shalt not covet, or you shall not covet, or you... We basically see there, there's a direct reference to the Ten Commandments. And the idea is, folks, we're dead to the Ten Commandments. We're dead to law. When it comes to justification, when it comes to getting right with God. However, last week we looked at the fact that even though we are dead to the law, with regards to justification, the Scriptures are all about salvation coming to men and women to make them into individuals who will fulfill the law. Right? If you don't keep His commandments, the truth isn't in you. Bottom line. It's those who do the will of the Father in heaven who ultimately are going to receive the kingdom of heaven. So, even though we're dead to the law when it regarding justification, we're actually made alive to obedience to the will of God through salvation. But here's the thing. I then went on to show that not only are we dead to the law with regards to justification, and even though salvation is all about bringing us to the point of becoming those who fulfill the law, sanctification in and of itself does not happen by way of the law. Sanctification is equally impossible to achieve by the law. And that is what is being said in verses 4 and verses 6 here in early uh, Romans 7, is that we become free.
fruitful to God, we become those who are serving according to the Spirit by becoming dead to the law and married to Christ. Now, let's jump into this. It's clear to me, as I hope it is to you, that those of us that are Christians have one ultimate purpose. Can you guys think of what that might be? Glorify God. Okay, now that's a good textbook answer right there. Can somebody give me a Bible verse that might give some warrant to making that statement? Anybody think of any verse in Scripture? Now, you might not recognize this address, but anybody think of 1 Corinthians 10.31? Anybody quote that? <coughs> Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, you all to the glory of God. We say that man is... Fallen. Have you ever contemplated the word fallen? I mean, not when you say my child is fallen. Do you really contemplate what that word means when we say that man is fallen? What does the word fallen mean? It has the idea of you were up someplace. And you have plunged or tripped or descended Right? Now think with me, folks. It has the idea of coming down. And basically, collapsing. By nature, all have sinned. And what? The ESV says, fall. Short. Of what? Of the glory of God. Lost men don't aim for God's glory. Period. They are fallen from that. That's the idea. Christianity, though, brings reversal. Is that not true? And whatever I do, I am not to approach it as one who is sinful and fallen from that. But now, in my state, I pursue it as one who is righteous and one who is pressed towards that. In Ephesians 2.6, it says we are raised up with Christ. Well, where are we raised up to? We could say, well, raised up to where He is, but where is He? I, mean, I realize there's, there are various things that we can look at as far as our being raised up, but for certain, for certain, undoubtedly, if we have fallen short of the glory of God, one of the things that we're raised up to in Christ is what? It's back to this, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I know you know this. All that's easy to say. You know, you guys know the answer. But stop right here. I I want you guys to ask yourself this question. I mean, really ask yourself this. 
Christian, do you think this way? As you go through your day, are you mentally, are you consciously making decisions, making efforts to give yourself to glorifying God in all things? And I stress all things. Nothing accepted. Nothing accepted. Do you live your life only doing and only allowing into your life what you are certain, absolutely convinced is for God's glory? When you buy things, when you watch things, when you speak about others, when you raise your children, when you use your time, when you work, when you relax, are you making a conscious effort to be doing and being and acting and speaking with the pure motive of striving for God's glory? That is a question you need to ask yourself. Because you know what happens? We read texts like 1 Corinthians 10.31 in our Bibles, but then we go out and somehow Christianity measures up in our mind when we're out there practically living sometimes to something else. You know, we get our little endeavors. We want to, a lot of times that's how we live life, right? You wake up in the morning and you live it based on what you want to accomplish that day. You have certain agenda, you have certain goals set, and you ultimately don't find yourself asking, is every single thing I'm doing for God's glory? Rather, you find yourself constantly in your mind reflecting on, am I on schedule to achieve what I need to achieve? Right? I mean, that happens a lot of times. We can shift gears like that. And what happens is the, the, the glory of God becomes secondary in our life. We basically live the way we want to. And I'm talking about Christians here. I realize the world lives like, a, like they want to. But what happens is we can get into the place where we start living more like we want to than what we know to be for God's glory. Yes, we do some good things in our life. But we allow some things in that are questionable. And you know what? We get to the place where we allow things into our life. I have a feeling that some of you have allowed things in your life this week that if I was watching you, you would not have done. And yet you allowed them. And not I, but Christ is watching. You see, we, we, we can move into that place where, yes, you know, we do many things. Maybe a whole bunch of things that are good. They are pleasing to God. They are for His glory. But, we don't strive in all things. And, and you know, I'm not talking about perfection here. That's not my point. You know there is a big difference between someone who aims at God's glory, thinks about God's glory, meditates on it, desires it, and once in a while, sometimes they regretfully and mournfully fall short of that glory versus the person who's not really thinking about it. As a guy, you know, you know what it gets like. We get to the place in life where we say, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? 
You know, we begin asking ourselves the question, what's permissible? We've, we've moved so far away to, from what's excellent, what is best, what is absolutely most for the glory of God to... I don't see anything wrong with that. Folks, that is, that is a that is a sorry way to live life. It really is. That is that is a pathetic way, and that is an unbiblical way to approach life. It really is. It's disgusting nominal approach. But we get there. We get there. Now, Christian, I want to. I, I just want you to think about this. If in everything you think, everything, everything you think, everything you do, everything you say, everything you're involved with, everything you watch, everything you do for the next 24 hours, you make a concerted effort to really think, am I doing this for God's glory? And if there is the slightest reservation, run from it. The slightest reservation. If you cannot be certain it is for God's glory, don't do it. Do you believe that that's the way God would have you to live? Now you think with me, if you give yourself purely to that agenda for the next 24 hours, I have a feeling that probably most every life in this room would change from what it has been over the previous 24 hours. Why? Because we get to the place where we begin to allow things in and we are just like that guy who's asking, well, isn't it permissible? You know, we can get to the place where we're so consumed about all of our liberties, we forget about what really does glorify God. What, what is it? You know, we're, we're trying minimally... Somebody has used this term, minimal morality, I think is a good term. you got these people that are just seeking to live that. If you're a Christian, if you're a child of God and a follower of Christ, be done with, with such mediocrity. So I was trying to live just one degree above what's wrong instead of examining everything on the basis of whether this thing distinctively glorifies God. Let me put this another way. You know, if, if you knew for a fact Jesus Christ was coming 24 hours from now, your life would change from the way you lived it in the last 24 hours. Now, I just ask you this. Are you involving your life in anything right now that, that you can say is for the glory of God? Or isn't for the glory of God? Whatever it is. Whatever you're involving in your life. If you would cut it out because you knew Christ was coming 24 hours from now, and I realize that may not be the, the best illustration, but the fact is worth contemplating. If Christ was coming then, how would my life change? And if it would change fairly drastically, why is that? Is that because you're doing things right now that you would not want Him to find you doing when He comes? And if that's the case, what are you telling me? You're doing things you know are not glorifying to God? Because the commandment, folks, is whatever you do, even down to the, the, the very menial tasks of life, we're to do for His glory. Well, 
This brings me to this. When we talk about glorifying God, sometimes that can be a pretty abstract term. What do we mean? You know, okay, that's nice whether I eat or drink. I, I, mean, I need to do it to the glory of God. But what does that mean? Does that mean when I eat, I, I don't eat with, with, you know, with my mouth open? Like we always tell each other, close, close your mouth. Wait. Is that what it means? Am I, am I, whether I eat or drink, or you know, I don't want to, when I drink, I don't want to let it run down my chin? Is that what it means? A God-glorifying life. Well, let me ask you guys. What glorifies God? Thanksgiving. That definitely glorifies Him. You guys think of anything else? I'm sure you can. Carlos has a bunch of things running through his mind he just doesn't want to say. Listen to this verse. Listen carefully to this. John 15.8 Now some of you are saying... I thought this guy was preaching on Romans 7. I haven't heard anything about it yet. So you will. Just a second. John 15, 8. By this my Father is glorified. Does anybody know what he says after that? That you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Now we see two truths there. One, bearing much fruit is how you prove to be a disciple of Christ. That's how you prove Christianity. Bearing much fruit. But the second reality, as we prove our Christianity by bearing much fruit, God the Father is glorified. Fruit is the part of a tree that's desirable. You do not plant an apple tree for leaves and for branches and for bark and for roots. You plant an apple tree to get apples. God did not set you in His orchard to have you simply take up space. He is glorified when you bear much fruit. Now, okay, back to Romans 7. Verse 4, we don't have the imagery of a fruit tree here, but rather the reality of marriage. So, hear it again. Do you not know, brothers, this is verse 1, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her husband, while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died. Did you see the word likewise? Maybe your Bible says, wherefore, therefore. The whole idea here is Paul just gave an illustration and now he's saying there is a reality in the Christian life that parallels the illustration. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Why? Why do we die to the law and why are we married to Christ? In order that we may bear fruit for God. 
Now, did you guys notice the illustration? What did you have in the illustration? You had a woman. You had a first husband. You had a second husband. Okay? Now, how do those parallel the reality in the Christian life? The woman is who? What was that? Us. The woman is us. The woman is the Christian, right? And the first husband is representative of? The law. The second husband is representative of? Christ. Now, in the illustration, the first husband dies. In reality, the second husband dies and we die. The first husband doesn't die. The law is very much alive. Heaven and earth might pass away. Not one jot of that law is passing away, folks. So, Paul isn't being so meticulous here to, to actually parallel the deaths. What he's saying is, death allows us to go from one husband to another. Even though the characters who are involved might not be exactly the ones that are dying. Okay. You guys see that? There's the illustration. I died of the law. I'm married to Christ. You see that? You see in verse 4 there, it says, belong to another. I died of the law that I might belong to another. It doesn't tell us exactly right there, but definitely we see from the context, it's Christ. We belong to another. If you have your new King James, it says, married to another. I think if you, if you have the NAS, it says joined to another. So we see that this took place. Now, why did this take place? In order that what might happen? That there might be offspring. Lloyd-Jones, Lloyd-Jones puts it in fairly graphic terms. I mean, he says basically we're married to Christ to be impregnated by Him to bring forth children. And what are the children? Good works. You see that? That's the offspring. We bear fruit for God. So that's what this marriage yields. Well, remember now with me, what does bearing fruit do? It glorifies God. So, we become married to Christ in order to bear this fruit, which is glorifying to God. I am married to Christ that I might bring forth fruit for God. It glorifies Him. I am dead to sin. Yes, I'm dead to the law. But what Paul's saying is, and this is only if you're a Christian, we're married to Christ. Now, I want that to sink in. You guys, let that sink in. If you are a Christian, you are married to Christ. Married. Not to an earthly king or a movie star or somebody famous. You're married to Christ. In order to bring forth fruit. 
Now I want to ask you this. If we hauled you into the courtroom and you were put on trial right now, you see by very much fruit you prove to be a disciple. If we were to drag you into court right now and a case was made against you for being a Christian, would there be sufficient evidence based on the fruit in your life to convict you of being a Christian? Would the evidence be there? And, and not just the little fruit. Yes, right here in 7.4 it says that we have been married to Him to bring forth fruit to God. But you remember in John 15.8, it's talking about much fruit. And when you go over to Titus 2.14, it talks about being zealous for this fruit. Zealous for good works. I mean, is it, could you be convicted of being one who is zealous for fruit? Would that be the testimony of your life when your whole life was, was brought out and examined? Would that be the case? I want to emphasize this much and zealous. Not just a good work here and there, but are you really consumed? This is what glorifies God. This is what comes forth from the life of one who's married to Christ. Listen to me. Do you have a burden for this? I mean, is, is this something that inside you can say, You know, my burden is kind of lackluster right now for that. Oh, I'm consumed about a number of things. But you know, specifically glorifying Him, bringing forth fruit. I mean, what does this fruit look like? What do these good works look like? What is it? What is a good work? I mean, what characterizes these things? If, I, if we were to take you into this courtroom and examine your life, what kind of things would we be looking for? Is it good that a man goes off to work? Is it good that you, know, you pick up your child when they fall down? Is it good that you're here today to be in, the, in, in our presence in the church? Is that good? Is, is that what the Scriptures would have us to think about? When you think about somebody who's zealous for good works, what do you think of? Well, you think of Christ. You think of His life. What did He do? He went around loving men and women and children. He went around pouring out Himself. He went around speaking the truth. He went around sacrificing His own comforts for the sake of others. He was consumed with doing people good. What are those good works? Imprisoned and you visited me? Thirsty and you gave me something to drink? This, visiting the widows and the orphans? Pouring yourself out for the hungry? These are the kind of things that Scripture would have us turn to. Love, working, or faith working through love. These are the things that pour out of this. But here's the whole thing. Okay, I can say this and you can know it. Listen, good works is not simply sitting down and studying John Owen. That isn't it. The teaching is supposed to prepare us, edify us, build us up for ministry. 
That is not to be an end in itself. We teach each other, we instruct each other, so that we might go off into this world and produce good works. Why? The Father says, when you do your good works out there and people see it, they will glorify your Father in heaven. Through good works, He is glorified. But here's the thing. We look at our lives and we say, okay, maybe I'm not doing as much as I should be. Maybe I... Maybe I can look at my life and I can say, you know what, if you put it on, if you put it in the courtroom, I've done some good things. But I mean, my life, I would not say is zealous or consumed. There are some good works, but much good works. I mean, is my life really being consumed with this? Listen, good works, folks, are those good things we do that pour forth from godly character. You know, in the beginning of Romans, the end of Romans, it talks about obedience of faith. But basically, good works are that which pour forth from faith. Remember, faith, without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's when I know, I know, I realize, I understand, this is a good thing. I see it advocated by God in the Word. Listen, one of the, one of the very descriptions of the lost in the second chapter of Romans is they are self-seeking. One of the very characteristics of the followers of Christ is to be like Christ, and that is to sacrifice yourself for the sake of others. That is what love is all about. You don't define love apart from sacrifice. It's impossible. Now, there's more to it, but it at least involves that. So, what do we do if we get to the place where we say it isn't there? Well, this is what I want you guys to remember. We are married to Christ now. We are not under the law. And I'll tell you this, the law doesn't sanctify. And I know what won't work to bring forth greater and greater fruit from you folks. You know what I could do today? I could say to you guys, well, okay, here's the list. Brother Charles has his board right here. I could set up the board and I could say, okay, well, you want to do good works on the Lord's Day? Well, don't go to the gas station. Right, brother? Don't go into the gas station. Don't buy the paper. Don't you dare watch a football game or a Spurs game. You know, I could do all this. But this is the very kind of thing that we're told we're not under anymore. It's not outward oppressive Rule-keeping, that isn't it. Under the New Covenant, the law is written on the inside. It becomes an internal thing. You know, I could sit up here and I could list, I could put up my list, I could point the fingers at you guys and say, you haven't done this. You haven't kept my rules. You have, And I could make you feel guilty and I could constrain you to try to... to you know, because of fear of man, try to conform to my little list here. But I realize in the end, that's not how... You know, I've been asking myself, how... Lord, show me something from this. I mean, I, you show us being married to Christ, bringing forth all these good fruits. In verse 6, he talks about the fact that we are now serving. Not under that old system. We're serving in the newness of the Spirit. And I'm thinking, okay, we have the Spirit. It's an internal thing now. This circumcision deal is not external anymore. It's a matter of the heart. And it's, 
the, the ministry of the Spirit is involved and we become married to Christ, we bring forth fruit. And I'm thinking, okay, I could dance around up here and I could pound real hard. I could turn all red in the face and holler at you guys. But you know what? That might get things slightly changed in your life till about Tuesday. But I'm thinking, Lord, this Christianity thing is powerful. That's one thing we know here. There is power in true Christianity to change people into fruit bearers. This marriage to Christ is a powerful thing. It unleashes a radical, extreme, transforming power and reality into our lives. And so how does it? You know, I've been thinking, I keep going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17. We looked at it when we went through that chapter last Sunday afternoon. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Wow. That, you know, I've been thinking about that. And I've been thinking, we are under the New Covenant. We are in the age of the Spirit. In a sense, that spirit is what moves upon us to transform us. Remember, as we view Christ degree by degree, we are being transformed into his same image where the spirit is. There is freedom. Well, I asked myself and we talked about this last week, you may remember, but freedom, what is freedom? Freedom is when I do what I want to do. Really, it is. Freedom is when I gladly, willingly, joyfully do what is right. Is it not? Is that not what is meant by where the Spirit is, there is freedom? It certainly is. When we are under bondage to sin, well, yeah, we were free to sin. But we weren't free to righteousness. In Romans 6, we're told about that. Righteousness was cut off from us. Why? Because it had no appeal. The, th the reason there is freedom under the new covenant is because the Spirit comes in and makes there an appeal towards doing what's right. It's because the Spirit of God gives us desire. And when I look at this church and I realize I want a very fruitful church. I want a church that is glorifying to God. I want you to be zealous of good works. I want you to bring forth much fruit. How's it going to happen? It's not going to happen by a list of rules and commandments and regulations and stipulations and statutes. It's not. It's going to happen where the Spirit of God is. He's going to bring freedom. And by bringing freedom, it's because He works desire. It's God who works in you to will. He brings desire. That's the beauty of the Christian life. It's not that before I loved wickedness, I loved darkness, I loved sin, and I poured myself into it, but now as a Christian, I still love all these things, but I just, you know, grip my teeth and force myself to do what's right. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is now being given desires. That's the essence of having the law written on my heart. I'm no longer constrained by an outward law that I don't have any desire to keep. But it's not grievous anymore. Why isn't it grievous? 
things aren't grievous if I enjoy doing them. And that's what happens. And so, okay, I ask myself. I ask myself, how am I going to make, and I actually, yesterday as I was preparing this, I, I could see, usually you sit back, well, you were back where you were a little while ago. I was envisioning Carlos back there, and I was, I was asking myself, how do I encourage Carlos to become more fruitful? He was the face I saw. How do I encourage this church to become more fruitful? And I, and I realize it's by this. It's, it's by having the Spirit of God increase desire in your heart. Okay, well now that's easily said. But how do I lay hold on the Spirit and cause Him to change your hearts to give you greater desire to run in this? And remember, I'm a man. He's God. Well, one thing can be said in all this. We know from the Word of God He has a desire to work a desire in your heart. We know He is willing. Is it not God's will that you be sanctified? I can show you a text, folks. That is His will. If it's the Father's will, it's the Son's will. If it's the Son's will, it's the Spirit's will to sanctify you. We see right there in 2 Corinthians 3.18 what He's doing is actually conforming us into the image of Christ. And the image of Christ, He was the perfect fruit bearer. That is what we are being turned into. He is the perfect God glorifier. That is what we are being turned into. By our marriage to Christ, the Spirit of God is working in us to produce this. But how does He do it? Well, you know what I did? I backtracked here and I thought back to Romans 6. And I thought, isn't it interesting? There, it isn't so much bringing forth good works. It's the negative end. There, he says, don't let sin reign. Well, how does he prepare you? How does the Spirit of God prepare a person to resist sin? By first telling you to consider yourselves dead to it and alive to God. Before He would have you actually strive towards holiness, strive in the direction of sanctification, He would have you know truth and believe it. I'll tell you this, the Spirit of God never works outside of the realm of faith. He will have you believe truth. And it's in light of truth. It's in light of promises. It's in light of privileges. It's in light of biblical fact. The Spirit of God takes that truth, stirs our hearts, inflames passion and desire. Right? Did He not say, consider yourselves dead to sin? He would have us believe, recognize, examine before He sends us to the task. Because he realizes in that, it motivates us to pull this thing off. And there is a supernatural operative effect as the Spirit of God takes that Word, makes it alive, increases our faith to, to lay hold on it, believe it, and act according to it. Okay? Well, let's do the same right here. What does he tell us? Before he talks about bearing these good fruits, he tells us a phenomenal truth. 
amazing. He says we are married to Christ. You guys believe that? Do you, do you believe as a Christian you're married to Christ? Okay, well I had you guys say, remember several weeks ago I had you all say, I am dead to sin. And then I had you guys say, I am dead to the law. I would like you guys to say right now to yourself, in faith, I am married to Christ. Say that. Go ahead. Say it out loud to yourself. Now, Freddie, it radically affects your life to be married to the lady sitting next to you. It's real. You experience that. It is one of the greatest realities in Freddie's life that he's married to Tricia. Do you guys realize this? As a Christian, you are married to Christ. We're not just talking about some earthly king. Or some famous person or billion. You are married to the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture speaks about this in other places. Isaiah, the prophets in the Old Testament spoke of this. Isaiah 54, 5. Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Hosea 2, 19. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. You know what I want to do? I'm just going to end this message in these next few moments just talking to you about your marriage to Christ. Because I know this. The greatest way that this church is going to become more fruitful, more loving, more willing to sacrifice themselves for the sake of others, more willing to extend themselves beyond the thresholds that you have yet known lies here. The Spirit of God is going to need to stir your hearts. And He does it through truth. And He does it when we look at Christ. He does it through us. You know, really, I realize this. If Christ's Spirit comes in and ravishes your heart with His love, that does 10,000 more times the good in stirring you to do good than a list of rules and regulations. It does. It does. You remember who the last of the Old Testament prophets was? John the Baptist. What did he call Christ? The Bridegroom. He said he was the friend of the Bridegroom. He was like the best man. He's the bridegroom. Well, if you got to have a bridegroom, what must you have? There is a bride. There is a bride. He says the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. And he said he rejoiced because Christ had come and he came to claim that bride. In 2 Corinthians 11:2, we have Paul, the apostle. He says, I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to one husband. To present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Freddie, you've talked before about the fact that you saw the virgins in the book of Revelation. Remember? 
I try to tell you, Freddie, that is descriptive of every child of God, not just of a person who was given to singleness their whole life or a Catholic priest or something that remained celibate. Paul was looking. Remember these Corinthians. Such were some of you. I mean, these guys were homosexuals and every other thing under the sun. And he says, I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. A pure wife. Of course, we have Ephesians 5. You have that whole parallel. Christ and the church. And the man and the woman. Husband and wife. Um, and, and then there's the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. He speaks repeatedly about the marriage of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And in Revelation 21.9, Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Brethren, I want you to go home sometime today, tomorrow, through this week. I just want you to dwell on the fact that you are married to Christ. I mean, that's, it's real. You are really married to the greatest. I mean, you can imagine how your daughter would be if you have a daughter. If, if all of a sudden she, you know, God saved her when she was young. She grew up and she, she married the godliest man that you'd ever known in your life. That she'd ever known. He was godly. He was handsome. He was strong. He was intelligent. Think about the husband we had. He's the greatest he is the loveliest. He is the most dignified, the most loving, the most caring, the most generous, the most sacrificial, the most precious individual that has ever lived. I can say, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He is actually and really and absolutely in fact, in truth, literally, genuinely, Fully my husband. I am married to him. Eternally. I have, you know, we have, we know our Cinderella stories, right? You know, the woman in rags, you know, poor servant girl, and she's, she's mistreated, and, and, and Prince Charming comes along and sweeps her away. But you know, the reality that we have in Christianity is that story a million times over. Think of us. Filthy. Yes, we were in our filthy rags. Christ came along and swept us up. The King of Kings. He takes sleazes and scoundrels like us and makes us His wife. I know it's a poor picture, but... He takes us. He weds us forever and forever and forever. For what purpose? To love us and hold us and have us. To care for us and provide for us. Fill us with joy. Fill us with wonder. Fill us with awe. Fill us with amazement. Fill us with delight. Forever and forever and forever and forever and forever. Bathing us with His most intimate gestures of kindness and affection and tenderness and passion and warmth and concern. 
I wish I could explode the reality of this to us. Listen. Your heart gets cold towards Him. Your love grows dim. And I want you to remember, the Song of Solomon is distinctly given as a spiritual illustration of Christ and the church. And you know what? You know what He says to you? You brethren that are here. You, my brothers and sisters. You that belong to Jesus Christ. These are the Lord's affectionate words to you. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes. Do you realize when you look upward, you captivate His heart? We, we hear of the Father who waits expectantly, longingly for the prodigal son to come back. But how much more affectionate here. We have the bridegroom who waits for the glance of the eyes of the bride. And he, he says, it captivates his heart. He says, how beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine. And in another place he says, how beautiful and pleasant are you, O loved one. And again he says, turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Is, is this too much? This is reality. There is, you know, sometimes we envision Christ in all of His glory. And He is very glorious. In all of His majesty. And yes, He is. And we think of Him almost as cold and removed and far away. And many times frowning and scowling at us and upset with us. But He's saying, cast your eyes my way. My affection for you, it turns my, it burns in my heart and This is, this is the same one whose glory blinded Paul on the road to Emmaus, or on the, the road to, to uh, oh, Damascus. It's the same one. His glory was blinding. His majesty surpasses. And yet, here he is speaking that way to us. And the angels, they fall down before Him. And we are His bride. You know, what, you know what it is about a bride? She knows the love of a husband the way no one else can know. Isn't that true? I mean, guys, is anybody showing your wife, any, any of the other men in here showing your wife more love than you do? No. The... the in a worldly sense, the greatest expressions of love are going to come from you. And your husband is not going to give that kind of love to anybody else. Only those who are the bride can truly know the fullness of the expressions of the love of Christ. Oh, people like to get all bent out of shape about, you know, Christ did all these things for the whole world. Folks, He did what He did for His bride. And His greatest expressions of love, He may give the folks out there their glass of water today and the sun may shine on them and the rain may fall, but none but His loved ones know the very depths. We bear His name. 
Isn't that what happens when somebody gets married? They bear the name. The woman will bear the name of the husband. He has a name that is greater than any other name. He has a name before which every knee is going to bow. I, in my marriage to Him, wear that name. This term Christian, that's bearing the name of Christ. That is not a small title. That is one of the most dignified. I'll tell you this. I told the children a story this morning. It's a true one. A rich man had a man working for him. He was called John the Rockbreaker. Isn't that what he's called? John the Rock. You know why he's called John the Rockbreaker? He broke rocks. Here's the master of the plantation. This guy works for him. He says, he's riding his horse one day. He says, John, what are you talking to yourself for? He said, I'm not talking to myself. He said, I was just thanking the Lord for my food. Oh, yeah, what are you eating? I got a crust of bread and a glass of water. He said, John, I wouldn't thank God for that meal. He says, oh, it tastes glorious when God's involved in this. You know what? One day he was out walking in a field. Again, Joel Beakey wrote these books. True stories from the 1800s. This guy is walking in a field and all of a sudden he turns pale and he stops. He heard a voice. The voice said, the richest man in the county is going to die tonight. He heard it audibly. He heard it again. He was trembling. He was pale. Because as he was contemplating, he realized he was the wealthiest man. He went home that night. He called his doctor. He had his doctor come examine him. There was nothing wrong with him. He had his doctor stay by his side all night. He barely slept. Woke up in the morning. He's still trembling. He doesn't feel right. He goes out for a morning walk. He made it through the night. He's walking along. And some man comes up to him and says, Here, John the Rockbreaker died last night. Suddenly it hit him. John was the wealthiest man. This world out here looks at us like we're the off-scouring of the world. They deride us. They mock us. You know, those idiots that meet down there at fatties. You know, what a foolish thing. In the midst of all those four yellow walls. Oh, they don't know. We wear the name of Jesus Christ. We are married to Him. We belong to Him. In Him, we are completed. Everything He is becomes ours. His wisdom becomes ours. All the riches in Him become ours. His righteousness, His sanctification, His redemption. Scripture says we are complete in Him. We are wealthy. We, right here in this room, are some of the wealthiest people in the universe. Bill Gates has nothing on you. Nothing at all. His wealth pales in comparison to what we have being married to Christ. We have everything in Him. Where He goes, I go. You come to Ephesians chapter 2? Yes, it says I'm made alive in Him. But He doesn't stop there. Yes, I'm risen with Him. He doesn't stop there. He says you are seated with Him. Now, you will be seated. You are seated. Because where the bridegroom is, folks, 
that's where you go. If, if I move over to New York, well, is my wife going to stay here? She's going to move with me. Where I go, my wife goes. If I go to India, she's going with me. Where Christ is, we are. We're the bride. Where He is, we are. He's seated there. We're seated there. The fact is, we may experience it and realize the fullness of it experientially one day beyond what we have now, but there is going to be no greater reality to it than there is right now. I am seated there with Him. Where He is, I am. Access to the Father. What did the Father say to the Son? This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, do you believe if you have a Son in whom you're well pleased and He finds a bride, you're going to allow Him to come into your presence and you're going to keep the bride out? You know what? Just as soon as the bride becomes connected with Him, they're one. Now, where the Beloved Son goes, the bride's accepted in the Beloved. Are we not accepted in We have access. The Father will never turn us away. What greater privilege could you want? You have access to the Father because you're married to the Son. And however the Father treats the Son is how we are going to be treated. Does Christ reign? You will reign with Him. Do you realize the fullness of this? He is King of kings. He sits upon a throne. You will sit upon a throne. Do you not know, brethren? You're going to judge angels. You're going to judge the world. We are married to Him because He reigns I, I just I feel a major frustration with this message because I do not have the ability to communicate this. And I probably should have realized that more greatly when I even started it. But I'll tell you this. You sit and meditate on this reality of being married to Christ. It will do more for you than sitting and reading over the Ten Commandments a hundred times. And I'm not saying Ten Commandments are part of God's Word. And it's through that Word that we are sanctified Sanctify them by thy truth, thy word is truth. But I want you to remember this. Jesus Christ Himself said, it's in those Scriptures that it speaks of Me. You need to see Christ in there. I'm not saying we throw away that. I'm not saying we don't do it. Obviously, the law, the, the expressed will of God in the Scriptures is something we need to be committed to. It's something that God is forming us into. But I'll tell you this. Desire does not come from simply reading law. Desire comes from the Spirit of God increasing your faith in the promises, in the reality, in the truths of Scripture. And this is a truth that will fan the flames of your heart. When you come to a place where you are delighted with Christ, you are rejoicing in Christ, where your love is spilling over, it will spill over in this fashion. It will break forth. You see, folks, the New Testament is not about keeping Ten Commandments. The New Testament is about the fulfillment of the whole law in love. Which is a greater and a fuller expression of this. And it's a life lived not in constraint. I don't want you to give because I'm up here pounding the tithe. God loves a cheerful giver. It's that willingness. It's that delight. It's that joy. It's, it's you know, God, God will give you the desires of your heart when you delight yourself in Him. 
there is that sense, that desire, that delight, that, that compulsion. I want you guys to be constrained by the reality of what you have in Christ. You're going to be seated with Him in glory. You can't see it right now. We get, we get so get so bound to this earth and to these eyes and what we see and what we hear and the physical senses. You've got By faith, we look beyond here. We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. We've got to break through the veil, folks. What's out there? There is a Christ seated in glory. I'm headed there. I'm married to Him. Betrothed already. Marriage supper is coming. I'm going to be there. My life is short. Time is going. Am I multiplying these aspects of my life that I know are glorifying to Him? Fruit will pour forth from this. It will pour forth from a marriage to Christ. Contemplate that marriage. Brethren, seek to glorify God in everything you do. Seek to have the Spirit of God move your heart. God moves upon our heart as we get ourselves in the Word, in the promises, in the reality, looking at Christ, looking at Him, the perfect law keeper, the perfect fulfiller, the perfect fruit bearer. Look at Him. You are married to Him. Draw close to Him. Don't be content with this, like I said before, disgusting, nominal, half-hearted, lackluster approach to giving God glory. If the Christian life is worth living, then do it with your whole heart. Don't, don't play games. Father, I pray that You would help us to see and to behold, to realize and consider. Father, I, I, I feel like I've majorly failed in setting this forth. I wish I had the tongues of angels that I might make the realities of this marriage more real, more alive. But You can make it that way. You can speak the realities of that to our hearts. I pray that You would for Christ's sake. Amen. You're dismissed.